How many of you like surprises? Do you like to be surprised? So I see some shaking heads. Some are volunteering already. They're like, you know, all right. I think all of us to some level, maybe we like surprises. Not like maybe huge surprises, like you didn't see something coming and then it totally shocked you. But most of us in some ways like surprises. There's an element to humor that's a surprise. Right, The whole idea is that something, you expected one outcome and, and you got something else and so you're like, oh, that's kind of funny type thing. If you remember a while back, we talked about the reality as we walked through uh, the, the, the gospel of Luke. We, we mentioned at one point the reality that grace is a surprise to us. It's not the foreseen outcome. So it surprises us as it shows up. Well, we come to this passage this morning of Saul's conversion, and it is, for the readers of Luke's writing, quite a surprise. Now, for us, it's not, because we know Saul, we're comfortable with him. In fact, for most of us this morning who are believers, we have somewhat of a relationship with the Apostle Paul, don't you? Right? I mean, he wrote most of the Bible or the New Testament that you hold dear. Maybe some of the verses that the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen are the very verses that really resonate with you and you recite them over and over again. I don't know, parts of Romans 8 or something like that. And they're near and dear to you. So for us, we're looking back and it's not so much a surprise. It's, it's the second time watching the Star Wars movies, right? And, and you're not surprised anymore to hear, I'm your father. You're kind of waiting for it to happen. And maybe as we've been going through the book of Acts, you've been waiting for this moment to happen, but just remember that this is quite a surprise. It's a surprise, obviously, for Saul, but it's also a surprise for the readers. And the part of the reason it's a surprise for the readers is because Saul doesn't fit the categories of those who have been drawn to Jesus throughout Luke's writings. Remember, as we walk through the meals with Jesus, that those who've been drawn to Jesus are tax collectors and sinners In fact, Jesus has gotten this title as a friend of tax collectors and sinners because those are the ones who are responding to his message of repentance. They're the ones who recognize they're sinners and they have no ability to save themselves and they need mercy. And they're finding in Jesus mercy. And so it runs. It runs all the way through. It runs from God choosing Levi from the tax table calling Levi. And then it runs all the way through to a, to a woman who, who three times is called a sinner by Jesus, by Simon the Pharisee, and by Luke as, as the narrator, that she's a sinner, and yet she is portrayed as one who is better able to worship God because she understands how much she's been forgiven. And so she's able to love much. It runs to Zacchaeus, who's called down out of a tree so that he can host Jesus at his house. It runs all the way through the Gospels and, 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 and we see this reality as Jesus said, I'm like a physician who's come to the sick. I, I'm, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And it, it runs to Luke chapter 15 where we have these three great parables of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then two lost sons. And we have this great image of, of, right, the first son who clearly rebels, clearly sins against his father and against heaven. That's his own confession when he comes back. And there's this moment, this idiom that Luke uses where it says he came to himself. He recognized, I have, I am in an absolute disaster. I have made a mess of my life. And he also recognizes he is totally incapable of fixing it. There's nothing he can do. All he can do is go to his father and plead mercy. 
And what is the father's response? The father's response is that mercy shows up in greater ways than the son could even imagine. Mercy swallows that son up and covers him in kisses. Mercy shows up and puts a ring on that son's finger and clothes him with his garment and says, kill the fattened calf and everybody is going to rejoice. For my son which was lost has been found. He was dead and now he's alive. But standing outside is an older son. An older son who hears the celebrations and who does not enter into the joy of his father. But is absolutely livid. A son who on the outside seems as though his heart is connected with the father's. Because he's been walking in external obedience But what we find is that his heart is possibly even further from that father than the rebellious son's heart. For he doesn't share the joys of his father. He is embarrassed by the fact that his father would go to such lengths to rejoice and the repentance of the younger son. And the parable drops It just drops with the older son still outside and we don't know, does he ever come in? Does he ever enter into the joy of his father? Well, as Luke writes, it is that older son that so portrays guys like Saul. The religious leaders. Those who who aren't responding to Jesus because they're not like the tax collector standing in the temple who's beating his breast and pleading nothing but mercy. Instead, they're standing and saying, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. It made sense when we come to these three conversions in Acts 8, 9, and 10. It made sense to see an Ethiopian eunuch who's so physically far away It made sense that Luke would record his coming to Christ because he fits. He fits with the others. And it makes sense when we see Cornelius, this this Gentile Roman soldier, come to faith in Christ. That fits, but, but Saul? I mean, you don't get more at the core of Judaism. You don't get more in the center. He's not on the margins. He's at the blazing center of, of Judaism. And, and, and yet here we have this conversion story. Of Saul. Well, verse 1 tells us that, that Saul is continuing to do what he has been doing. It jumps right in and tells us that Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the church, against the disciples of the Lord. This takes us back to chapter 8 and verse 3 where we left Saul off when he is going house to house and he is ravaging the church, grabbing men and women. He's an equal opportunity persecutor, an equal opportunity abductor. He grabs them and he's taking them away. This is what Saul is is doing. And our text tells us that he even goes to the high priest. So this is Saul initiated. It's not the high priest who comes to Saul. Saul goes to the high priest and he asks for letters to the synagogue in Damascus. So if he finds anyone there belonging to the way, men or women, he can bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem. Right? We know Saul. Saul's the one giving hearty approval to the murder of Stephen. And now Saul is going to pursue these people. He's going to seek to hunt them down, go even to Damascus, which is a key city, going to go even to Damascus to see if he can find any belonging to the way. 
Now, one of the things that's interesting in this section, we won't have time to trace all of it, is all of the different references to disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. In the first two verses, we've already had two different references. And throughout this whole passage, Luke will continue to use different references. One of the most significant is from the lips of Ananias. Because Ananias calls the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem saints. And it's the first time it shows up. Now, we begin to see that the church, followers of Christ, are beginning to pull away from Judaism. They're beginning to distinguish themselves as set-apart ones from Judaism. And, and you notice this already, and this, this is part of, uh, of what's maybe difficult for us to, to keep in mind here to understand. Why would Paul have to go to Damascus to see, to find out if there are followers of Jesus, or followers of the way? Well, because they're still meeting in the synagogues. Where are they going to hear the Scripture read? They're going to they're go to the synagogue. That's where they're at. There's not a... Bible Baptist Church of Damascus or a First Baptist Church of Damascus or the Bible Church of Damascus, the United Methodist Church of Damascus. They're, they're, they're all still meeting together in the synagogue. So Saul's going to go and he's going to see if he can find any of these who are followers of the way. So he's got his orders, he's got his authority, and we find out he's also got his posse of people, and off they're going, they're going to go to Damascus and bring any followers of the way bound back to Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and he falls to the ground. All right, I won't ask for a show of hands, but... Probably all of us at some point in our lives have tested the brightness of a flashlight by aiming it at our face and turning it on. I did that just the other week. And, and like as I'm seeing spots, I'm going, why? Why, why, was, why, why did I do that? This is a blinding light. It, I love the fact that Luke, for our perspective, says this is happening suddenly. But what we see as we walk through this text, this is not sudden for God. His sovereign hand has been working and planning this all along. It's sudden for Saul and it's sudden for us, but not for God. Suddenly this light shines, such a blinding light all around him that it brings him to his knees. He can't move. He can't function. He goes from riding or walking to on the ground. So imagine that sensory overload. A light hits you that's so bright that it brings you to your knees. But then there's now an overload of words. Strong words. Saul, Saul, a plea, an intense plea, repeating his name twice. Saul, Saul. No greeting, as it were. Why are you persecuting me? Now, I just want you to imagine that. Husbands, don't try this with your wives. If you have some kind of gripe with your wife today, I don't suggest bursting into the bedroom. Why in the world are you? Right, it doesn't, doesn't work out well. In fact, in interpersonal like relationship skills, negotiating skills, you're told to avoid why questions because they're they're accusatory. They they, they can put the other person on the defensive, right? So, so you 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 figure out a different. Jesus comes in here and he pleads to Saul. He clearly identifies Saul. This is a very strong plea, and he immediately dives in. No greeting, nothing, which we'll see is different from his interaction with Ananias, and he immediately just says, why are you persecuting me? It's a strong accusation, and Saul does not miss it. So here's a man who's already in the dirt because of this bright light that's shining. 
He has been called out very clearly, and there's a clear accusation that's been levied against him. You are persecuting me. Now, in our Bibles, in the ESV, it has Saul's question as uh, a capital L, Lord. Who are you, Lord? I, I don't know that there he's really acknowledging that this is Jesus, that he's really saying that capital L, Lord. It might be like, hey, you're clearly very powerful and strong, and I want to show you respect, so who are you? I think it's a genuine question. Who are you? And then Jesus clarifies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now Saul in just a moment has gone from this powerful individual who is ravaging the church, who has gone to the high priest and has gotten his hall pass to go to Damascus so no one can get in his way and he is going to bind people against their will and bring them back to Jerusalem to do with them what he thinks ought to be done and in an instant he has gone from mighty authoritative powerful to in the dirt blinded and being accused of things for which he cannot find a way out of. Saul is utterly and completely in this moment humbled. Humbled even further in that instead of now acting upon his own orders, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is going to give to Saul different orders. And Saul, instead of leading a posse of men to accomplish what he wanted to do, now he's going to have to be led by the hand because he's blind to accomplish what God has told him to do. Saul is utterly brought to the ground, literally brought to the ground. He is absolutely, completely, and totally humbled. And this is exactly where Saul needed to be. And before we connect it with anything else, I just want to remind us of this reality that here in this moment, God is not doing this to Saul because he's getting even. When Saul went to the high priest to get these letters, it wasn't like God got ticked off and said, that's it, I'm going down there, I'm going to kick his rear end. No, God's sovereign hand is all through this. God is bringing Saul to this place of utter humility out of love. God wants to do work in Saul's life, and in order to do this work in his life, the best place for Saul to be is in the dirt, is to be completely humbled. It's a great reminder to you and me that God often chooses to do His greatest work in our life and our greatest moments of humility. That the moment of our conversion, for instance, was a moment when we recognized that we were completely sinful and unable to save ourselves and that we needed salvation from outside And maybe we want the Christian life to be something different. We want the process of sanctification to be something different. But those of us who have walked in this Christian life for a while should be the first to testify that many, many times God brings us here over and over again. That His greatest work at times happens when we are in the dirt, as it were, humbled and recognizing that if He does not save us, we will not be saved. That our only hope is in Him. That is where Saul is. That is how God humbles him, lovingly, compassionately humbles Saul. Now, of course, in this, there's also this great connection that many a preacher and many a commentator has noted that the Lord Jesus shows up and says to Saul, you're persecuting me. Well, he wasn't actually persecuting 
Jesus literally, right? Because Jesus has already ascended back up to the right hand of the Father. Well, why is it then that Jesus says so clearly you're persecuting me? Because, because Jesus is showing the connection between himself and his followers. Showing the connection that if you're persecuting my disciples, you're persecuting my followers, then you are persecuting me. We rejoice in the union that we have with Christ as believers. We come to faith in Christ and we are placed in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we receive glorious benefits that flow from Jesus Christ to us. Justification, redemption, adoption, all of these wonderful things flow from Christ to us. And we think about that and we meditate on that and we rejoice in that. But here's the reality that 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 doesn't just flow one way, but here Jesus makes abundantly clear that as his people suffer, as they are persecuted, he experiences that. He identifies with that. He is not distant from that. So as Jesus told his disciples when he sent out the 72 in Luke chapter 10, verse 12, he told them that if they reject you, they're rejecting me. And if they reject me, they're rejecting the one who sent me. So he identifies with his people And so here, Jesus, in this beautiful way, is identifying with his followers in much the same way we saw with Stephen, right? We saw this with Stephen, that as Stephen is dying, Jesus isn't indifferent. As Stephen is dying, he's not up there going, yeah, well, I need you to die so I can move some pieces on the chessboard and get my plan going here, so sorry, but you're the pawn that gets knocked off. No, he's not indifferent. What is he doing? He's standing He's standing, he's anticipating, he's showing compassion, he cares. There is not a follower of Jesus Christ who is enduring persecution at this moment right now that Jesus does not know and is not impacted and affected by it. That's beautiful. What is it that Jesus is accusing Paul of here? I think this is so important. Sorry, I'm going to flip back and forth between Saul and Paul the whole time. Just have to deal with it. What is it that Jesus is, 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 is accusing Saul of in this moment? There are some who would say that what we find here is Saul who's a hypocrite. He, he's a, a Pharisee, he acts good on the outside, but he's not really good on the inside. I don't, I don't think that's it. By Saul's own testimony later on, Philippians chapter 3, this is not the perspective that he gives of himself. He says, listen, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to, as to, I was a, I was a Pharisee, uh, uh, as to the law, I was blameless. I, I think that Saul is a faithful student of the Word of God, the Old Testament at that point. He is a faithful student of the Mosaic Covenant, and he was diligent to seek to keep the Mosaic Covenant and the traditions that the, of the Pharisees. What he is accused of here, is not being hypocritical. What he's accused of here is not even worshiping the wrong God. What he's accused of is worshiping God wrongly. What he is accused of is that the Messiah has come and he missed it. The Messiah came and he missed it. You see, in Saul's mind, he could not comprehend, studying the Old Testament, that the Messiah would be a poor carpenter's son. He could not comprehend that the Messiah that he saw that was supposed to be authoritative and powerful and restore the kingdom of Israel, that that Messiah would be poor, that that he would be a carpenter's son, and he could not comprehend. 
that that Messiah who was supposed to deliver them from the Gentiles would die at the hands of the Gentiles. And worse than all of that, He would die cursed, hanging on a tree. He could not fathom that there would be fellow Jews who would identify that man as the Messiah. So what happens to Saul in this moment as he's so adamantly against this Jesus of Nazareth who he is convinced is not the Messiah, now he's confronted. Confronted with that same Jesus except this time, this time it's the glory of that Jesus that has knocked Saul to the ground. This time he's recognizing that this Jesus who, yes, hung on a tree and who suffered and died at the hands of Rome, this Jesus overcame sin and death and has risen. Well, there's Saul. He's, 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 the men who are with him were told that they hear the voice. I think they see the light. I don't think they see the risen Lord Jesus given the other accounts that we have. And he's told by Jesus, you're going to go to Damascus and you wait there. And verse 9 tells us for three days, he waits, neither eating or drinking. Now, is he fasting? Is he doing this purposely? The text doesn't tell us. I think Saul's world has been totally rocked. And I think perhaps whether he's doing this purposely or not, it may just be that his world has been so rocked he doesn't want to eat or drink. I know for some of us, that's a stretch, like three days without eating, I don't know. Right, but, but he is, he's there. We're told later on that he's praying. Now here's this beautiful thing is this section is, is talked about as Saul's conversion and, and he's the highlight of it. But really Luke gives as much focus to Ananias as he does to Saul. Right? It's kind of like the parable of the prodigal son. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. And really the, the emphasis is on two sons and, and the focus is on the father. Well, here is Ananias. Verse 10 tells us now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And Luke will do this at times throughout Acts. He'll just drop these people on us. And we're like, where, where did that come from? Right? How, who's Ananias? How, how, how is there a disciple at Damascus? Is there a church in Damascus? I don't know. And Luke doesn't tell us. And he just wants to remind you, hey, I'm writing an orderly account here of the continuing work of Christ, but I can't write it all. So you're just going to get some of these people every once in a while just to remind you there are others out there. The Holy Spirit's doing a lot more than I can write down. So here we get Ananias. And the Lord, we find out this is the risen Christ, appears to him in a vision and says, Ananias, one time, different from Saul. And he said, here I am, Lord. This is much more conversational than Jesus appearing to Saul. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. I would just love to see Ananias' face as this is going on. Like at first, it's like, oh, Jesus, woohoo, right? I mean, Jesus is here, he's visiting a vision, I'm seeing him, right? Ananias, hey, I'm here, Lord, me, pick me, pick me. I want you to go to this house, got it. What's the name of the person? Got it. Okay, who am I going to see? Saul, what? What? Who? I'm going, where? You sure this was the house you meant to stop at? What's even funnier to me is that as Jesus lays this out to Ananias, he even tells Ananias that he's completely ratted him out. Remember, Saul's coming to find out if there are followers of the way. And Jesus just says, hey, Ananias, by the way, um, I've already given Saul your name. 
and I've showed him what you look like. <laughs> so, and then Ananias is like, well, maybe, maybe you meant to tell me to pack my bags and like run away. Ananias <laughs> responds in honesty, in fear. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is terrified of what God is calling him to do. He is being asked to trust that, the, that, that something so incredibly radical has happened and to put his life on the line in this moment. Now, I don't want to exaggerate things here, but as I thought about this this week and I thought, how would we relate to this? The only thing that came to mind is to, is to imagine that the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to uh, a Ukrainian soldier who was a follower of Christ and said, listen to me, I need you to go to Vladimir Putin. He's praying. And he's waiting on you to heal him. And none of us would be shocked if that Ukrainian soldier said, ha, yeah, no. Right? We talked about this last week and we see it again here this week. We see God's sovereign hand through all three of these conversions. We see God working in ways that only he can, doing miraculous things, and yet he will not work outside of calling his people into obedience. He loves to work through the obedience of his people. So here he's, the risen Lord Jesus Christ has already showed up to Saul and yet he won't finish the whole thing. He requires Ananias to come. He requires Ananias to obey. It's what he delights to do and he calls Ananias to a moment of obedience that's way outside of his comfort zone. What feels safe, what feels convenient, what feels good. He calls Ananias to a place where he has to totally trust in God's word. And it's not because he doesn't like Ananias, but because he wants Ananias to experience his goodness. He wants Ananias to have the blessing of being an instrument in God's hands to accomplish something extraordinary. I had this thought this week about Ananias as a really old man. And can you imagine how many times he told this story? I mean, I can see him there with his grandkids Hey, kids, do you ever told you the story about when I went to see Saul? And his wife's like, shut up, honey. You've told that story a million times. Right? I mean, we know because we see from this side, but Ananias is being called to do something that puts his very life at risk, that is so scary to him, and yet God is trying to bless him through it. Do, do you see where I'm going with this? Do you, do you understand what I, what I want to remind us of this morning, brothers and sisters? That God, in love towards us, calls us to obedience that is extravagantly difficult for us, not because he, he doesn't like us, but because He loves us. And he doesn't want us just to know about him. He doesn't want us just to talk about him. He wants us to experience him. He doesn't just want us to sing about his steadfast love. He wants us to know it. Because we got to a place where he called us in obedience where nothing else made sense. 
where, where nothing that we were doing makes sense. For Ananias to do this makes no sense unless God tells him to do it and God can be trusted. God calls us at times to those moments and he's not doing it because he's angry with us or he doesn't love us. It's because he does. And because he invites us as his children to be instruments in hands as we walk in obedience. I don't know what God's calling you to this morning. I don't know what moment in your life you're like Ananias where God has clearly communicated something to you and you're in that moment where you're going, um, yeah, Lord, uh, <clears throat> could I just, uh, could I offer a rebuttal? But I hold out to you, Ananias, and what God worked and did through him. So Ananias responds, God, Jesus responds to Ananias and says to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out, to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. Now this is a, this is a, an important point here in, in Luke's writing because Luke has these um, these callings, these commissionings, these callings throughout his writings, and they signify, they, they connect the story all the way through, that the mission is constantly the same, but they also signify key people. So John the Baptist has this type of thing. Zechariah gets it. The, the commissioning of John the Baptist goes to Zechariah before John the Baptist is ever born. We, we see it in a way with Peter as well. What we see it now here with Saul, this person is going to play a very key role. And if that doesn't clue us in, the wording for sure clues us in because this idea of a chosen vessel, this isn't Paul's conversion or Saul's conversion. This is his calling. So we have this wording of a chosen vessel which connects with the imagery and idea of prophets of the Old Testament. And, and this, is the, this is the understanding that Saul would have. In, in Galatians chapter 1, he speaks this way, before I was born, God called me. There he's not talking about his salvation, He's talking about his calling as an apostle. He's got a pivotal role to play. He's going to carry the gospel. He's going to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And of course, we know that's going to happen. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off of his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, at what point did Saul become a follower of Jesus Christ? I don't know. I don't know. Some would say it's, it was before Ananias showed up because Ananias greets him as brother Saul. Maybe he was just trying to be really nice to Saul because he wasn't still sure like how Saul was going to respond. Later, after that, of course, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's baptized. So maybe it happens after that. Maybe it's connected with these scales falling off of his eyes. The, the text doesn't tell us. What we do know is that he is converted. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ because he receives the Holy Spirit and he is baptized. He takes food and he's strengthened. And then for some days, he is with the disciples in Damascus. And then verse 20 tells us this. And this is a Mark phrase. This is not a Luke phrase. It says, immediately. Now, if we were reading through the Gospel of Mark, Mark would say immediately, and we'd be like, okay, okay, I get it. Because he's the immediate guy. He's like the microwave gospel. Luke is not that way. So when Luke uses a word like immediately, he wants us to be drawn in immediately. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the Son of God. <laughs> immediately. 
he does this. And all who heard it are amazed. Why? Well, it's the way Luke writes it, it's almost like Saul's the only one that doesn't get how awkward this situation is. Some of us love awkward humor. We watch The Office over and over again because we just love awkward humor. Like people just making an absolute fool of themselves and we're embarrassed for them and they're not embarrassed. Saul is out. I mean, people know, right? The text repeats the notion. He's come here to drag people away who were followers of Jesus and now he's proclaiming Jesus. Is he not embarrassed for himself? Nope. Nope. He boldly proclaims Christ so much so that they want to kill him. And so, great Sunday school lesson. Always love this one, right? You find the lightest kid. You get the laundry basket. You're trying to let them down out of the wall like they're Saul kind of thing. And yeah, so it escapes through a hole in the wall. And where does Saul go? I love Saul. Where does he go? Like you would think, all right, I, I was converted. I, I was coming to this place to persecute Christians. I am a Christian now. I mean, most of us, it would take a little while for us to warm up to, I'm going I'm to proclaim Jesus now. Because we'd just be embarrassed. We'd just be like, yeah, I got it totally wrong. And if it got to the place where people were trying to kill us in Damascus, I don't think we would go, well, let's go to Jerusalem then. I mean, if they wanted to kill me in Damascus, they're going to love me in Jerusalem. Let's go back to the place where I got these letters from the high priest. But that's Saul. That's Saul. Well, I got run out of Damascus. Where would I go? Let's go where it's hotter. And that's where he goes. He goes to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he tries to get in with the disciples. But they aren't convinced, not certain. And who pops up on the scene? Barnabas. Don't you love Barnabas? He pops up on the scene and he vouches for Saul. He saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. He preached boldly in Damascus. Accept him in. And on, on Barnabas' word, he's accepted in and he's able to move in and out among the disciples in Jerusalem. And he preaches there in Jerusalem. In fact, there's this great reversal that takes place. This, this passage has a lot of reversals in it. There's this great reversal that takes place because Luke highlights the fact that he disputes with a certain group of Jews. The Hellenists. They thought they did something when they got rid of Stephen. Ha! God was like, yeah, well, watch. I've got another guy in the works. You're going to love him. Saul disputes with the Hellenists to the point where, of course, they want to kill him. And so he's sent away by the brothers. Now, verse 31 at times uh, can be preached as though what happened was Saul was such a pain and was causing so much trouble that it wasn't until he left that things were at peace. And I don't think that's the case. I think the peace comes because Saul, as Luke has recorded it, is the, he is the, 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 the point of the spear. He's the tip of the spear for the persecution that's taking place. That is, has slowed down greatly now. Not only that, but they're encouraged because it hasn't just slowed down because Saul died. It's slowed down because Saul has come to faith in Christ. And so they're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the church is multiplying. 
Now, here's what I love, and, and, and here's what I, I want us to, 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 to think about as we, as we consider this conversion of Saul, because here's how I, at times, uh, c- could take a passage like this. You see Saul converted, you see this miraculous work, and you see this boldness of Saul, and you say to yourself, that's what I need to do. I need to be like Saul. Right? Saul's converted, and immediately, no shame, he's out there preaching Jesus. Can I ask you a question real quick? Well, I can because you're stuck here. What kind of personality did Saul have before he was converted? Do you picture Saul as a little quiet, mild guy? Um, um, excuse me. Um, excuse, excuse me. How, how, did, how was Saul before, before he came to faith in Christ? He was a total knucklehead. I mean, he was as loud and fiery and bold and stiff-necked as you can imagine. Wasn't he? Yeah. It wasn't all of the Jewish leaders who were going house to house, dragging men and women away. It wasn't people who were so zealous that they were willing to give hearty approval watching a man be killed by being pelted with stones. But that's Saul. It's Saul who is going to the high priest saying, I need some letters because I'm hunting these people down. I want to bring them bound back here. And if we have to kill them, so be it. That was Saul before he got saved. Now Saul gets saved and what happens? Oh, right, because all Christians are nice, quiet, calm people. That's what Saul turns into. Now he's got the Holy Spirit in him. He's just quiet and pleasant all the time. Um, Excuse me. Excuse me. Would you like to hear? Excuse me. Would you like to hear about Jesus? No. What is Saul after he gets saved? An absolute knucklehead. Bold. Fiery. Passionate. Here's how I picture Saul. If Saul had a pool in his backyard it would all be the deep end. And there would be no stairs down into that pool. He'd be like, dude, you're either getting in or you're out. Don't, don't mess around. That's him. And so what happens? This radical conversion and call falls on Saul. And if, and if, if, you, if we had more time and we could walk through it, you would see this is such a radical moment. This is such a radical conversion. It's the only time the risen Lord Jesus Christ appears to someone like this. This is so radical. Saul's conversion is extraordinary and his calling is extraordinary. And in that extraordinary conversion and that extraordinary call, God's plan and purpose is not to erase Saul, but to redeem him. To redeem him. And those are two totally different things. Sometimes we can get the idea that if we're radically saved, that what God's going to do is He's going to throw away what He made before. He's going to put us through the, I don't know, the, the, the press of, of whatever a good Christian's supposed to look like. And He'll just ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. And we'll all look the same. We'll all act the same. We'll all behave the same. We'll all be the same. 
Sometimes we can even give this idea unintentionally. We talk about being hidden in Christ or being clothed in Christ's righteousness so that God doesn't see us. He just sees Christ's righteousness. And we give the idea like maybe God puts up with us, but he doesn't really like us. Maybe God saved Saul, but he really wanted to totally change Saul. What God does is he redeems Saul. So what Saul is, a fiery, passionate knucklehead before he's saved, guess what God does now? God takes and uses that same passion, fieriness, and boldness and unleashes him for the sake of the gospel. In fact, I am absolutely convinced that's part of the reason that God says to Saul, uh, you're going to see how much you got to suffer for my sake. <laughs> because Saul's one of those guys, when you put a wall in front of him, he's thinking of ten ways to break right through it. Right? This is who he is. Is that the way all of them are? No. Did you see Ananias in the passage? Is that the way Ananias was? No. He's there going, Lord, are you sure I'm supposed to go there to talk to that guy? God takes and uses Ananias just the way he is. Calls him into obedience the way he is to take a step of faith where he was at. And then there's Barnabas. I tell you, the more I read Luke's writings, I wonder how in the world Paul and Barnabas ever got along. How did this duo connect? Barnabas is this encourager. Barnabas is not the guy out front. I, there's not a moment that I can think of in all the book of Acts where you see Barnabas bursting into a synagogue and he's like, I'm going to tell you guys about Jesus. That's, just not, that's not him. What is Barnabas doing? He... he, he He's taking Saul and he's vouching for him before the disciples. Because that's how God made him. That's how God knit him together from the beginning. And now as a believer, God's redeeming that and using that. And he's doing the same with Saul. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, this morning that God intends to do the same thing with you and me. His intention is not that we all end up looking a certain way, that, that if we were all really compliant with the work of the Spirit in our lives, if we all really lived into the, the gospel that has so radically saved us and is transforming us, that we would all end up looking the same. That would be called an echo chamber, and that's not what God intends. Instead, He says, when I made you, when I knit you together in your mother's womb, I did not make a mistake. And what I want to do now is to redeem you. To take you as you are, who you are, and use you for my purposes. That's incredible. Now here, here's the thing. You want to see a radical change in Saul? Don't point to his boldness. He was bold before he was saved. Here's the radical change in Saul. The radical changes Saul is that before in his boldness, he looked at people and he said, if you disagree with me, I will kill you. If you disagree with me, I will bind you up and throw you in prison. I will crush anyone who disagrees with me and gets in my way. Saul comes to faith in Christ and now now still as fiery and passionate, he's in Damascus and they want to kill him. And what happens? Saul doesn't go, oh, bring them on. I'll kill them before they can kill me. Let's go. What does he do? He's lowered in a basket out of a hole in the wall. He goes to Jerusalem. 
they want to kill him there. What does he do? He leaves. The radical transformation in Saul's life is that this fiery, passionate knucklehead shifts from being a guy who says, if you disagree with me, I will crush you, to being a guy who says, if you disagree with me, I will absorb in my body the consequences. If you disagree with me, that's fine, you can beat me. You can throw me in prison. You can stone me. It's okay. I'm still going to preach Jesus. It's phenomenal. Where did Saul get that? That wasn't his idea. It's because he was on the road to Damascus. A strong-headed, bold, and completely lost man. And he ran into Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ whose body still bore the scars of embracing those who rejected him. Of embracing the consequences of those who rejected him. That's radical transformation. That's radical transformation. And so what do we see in Saul's life? He, he lives a life where over and over again he absorbs in his body from here on out the, the consequences of those who would reject him. Still as fiery, still as passionate, still as bold, but redeemed and being sanctified by the work of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want you to hear and know this morning that God doesn't just love you, he likes you. He made you. And when he formed you, he did not make a mistake. And his plan and his purpose in saving you was not to throw who you used to be in the trash so he could start over again. He does not want to hit the delete button. Instead, he wants to redeem who he made you to be because he has plans and purposes for you. The transformation he has for your life is way greater than just simply conformity to a certain, I don't know, set of characteristics that we might think of as Christian. His plan and purpose is to change us to the place where we are like our Savior, willing to absorb in ourselves the consequences of other sins that the gospel might go forward. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great testimony of Saul's conversion. I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged. <laughs> I, I pray that we would be encouraged to know that you love us, that you like us, that, that, that you, you desire us. I pray, Father, that we as a church would be a group of people who are all very different. There are passionate, fiery ones among us. There are those who are quiet. And, and reserved. You don't want us to all become extroverts and loud and bold. You have a plan and purpose for us. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be one where all of these differences are working together by the power of your spirit to see the gospel go forward. And Lord, we rejoice also in this story that, that you worked this conversion of Saul who would be your vessel to take the gospel before Gentiles, before kings and before the people of Israel and you would so work your spirit would so work so that traveling down through history the gospel would get to us we would be here today having believed by 
your work of sovereign grace in our lives. Thank you for that. Thank you for this record of our story. Now we turn to you and we rejoice and we sing praises to you because we were like Saul, lost. We were not looking for you, but you came and found us. And so we give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen.